0: Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. Last Sunday, we began a series working through the book of Acts. Now, Acts is one of the most exciting and dynamic books in our New Testament as it documents the initial history of the early church. It records how the first followers of Jesus came to terms with the mission that God had given them and what they did in order to fulfill it. So so we looked last week at the first half of chapter 1, which was essentially Jesus' commission to his disciples. They were to witness to the world about what they had seen and heard and experienced of Jesus' ministry. By their words, by their lifestyle, by their ministry, in the power of the Holy Spirit, they were to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God come to earth, just as Jesus had done. They were to carry on Jesus' ministry and keep the business going. Well, most importantly, last Sunday, we noted that Jesus made that statement in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that they were to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were to wait in Jerusalem until such time as they had received an infilling or empowering of Holy Spirit power. Well, what happened next? We pick up the story immediately following Jesus' commission and his ascension into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together, constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there he fell headlong, his body bursting open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For said Peter, it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us through the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bas Abbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. When we read passages like the first chapter of Acts and Jesus commission to his disciples, well, we read them with 2,000 years of historical perspective. Now, today we have millions and millions of Christ's followers all around the world. The great commission of making disciples amongst every people group on planet earth, it doesn't seem that unattainable in our day and age. But let's put ourselves into the shoes or the sandals of these first-generation believers. What would it have been like for them For a start, there were only about 120 of them with a core group of 12, now minus one. They'd spent the last few years following Jesus around the countryside, uh, observing the way that he ministered to people and taught about the kingdom of God. And then they'd, they'd seen him brutally crucified Resurrected and then miraculously taken up to heaven before their eyes, and ringing in their ears would have been those words of assignment go and and witness to the rest of the world about what they'd seen and experienced. So, so what would we have done in their situation? How would we respond to Jesus' commission if we were one of those original 120? When the task ahead of them was enormous. It wasn't a project that was going to be accomplished in just a couple of weeks. They weren't exactly people of high social standing and influence. I mean, most of them were Galileans, and they weren't generally regarded highly as people of influence. And yet Jesus had given them this enormous task. Well, the verses that we're considering today give us an insight in how they immediately responded. But before we take a closer look at what they did, there are a couple of bits of historical information that are worth highlighting. Firstly, in verse 14, we read that among the initial band of believers were Jesus' mother and his brothers. Now, this is actually the last reference in the New Testament to Mary, the mother of Jesus. We, we know a bit about her latter life from church history, but, but this is the last specific reference to her in the Bible. Uh, Perhaps it's not unusual that Mary was there because, well, mothers, they tend to love and honor what their children do. But it also says that Jesus' brothers were numbered here uh, amongst the initial believers. Now, that's noteworthy because throughout Jesus' ministry, his brothers were not just indifferent towards him, they were at times openly hostile and, and mocking. Mary and Joseph obviously went on to have many more children after the birth of Jesus. And uh, in Mark chapter six, verse three, for instance, it tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, plus an unknown number of sisters. Uh, You go back a bit to Mark chapter three, verse 21, Jesus was ministering in his hometown and his brothers then tried to stop him because, well, they, they thought he was out of his mind. And then in John chapter seven, verses three to five, during the festival of tabernacles, the text says that Jesus' brothers openly mocked him and made fun of him. They they certainly didn't believe that he was who he said he was. But, but here, on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, his brothers were listed among those who believe. Something had radically changed. Well, perhaps the lessons for us in this is that there's no such thing as an unreachable person for Christ. Maybe we have family members who don't believe as we do, or who maybe ridicule us for being people of faith. Don't give up loving them and praying for them. In the fullness of time, Jesus' own brothers came to believe in him. In fact, Brother James later on went to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the author of what we call the book of James in our New Testament. So don't give up praying for the salvation of those within our family. Secondly, there's the account here of Judas's death. Now, this is perhaps only a, a minor point, but we actually have an apparent conflict between Luke's version in Acts here uh, regarding what happened to Judas and that which Matthew records in Matthew chapter 27. According to Matthew, having realized what he had done and betraying Jesus, Judas returned the money that he'd received from the priests and he went out and he hanged himself. And the priests then took the return money and they bought the field where he was buried and they named it field of blood because they said it was bought with blood money. However, according to Luke, Judas bought the field himself, fell headlong into it and his body burst open And all his intestines spilled out onto the ground. Then the field was nicknamed field of blood because of Judas's blood being spilt there. Well, at the risk of being perhaps a little bit macabre, there have been various attempts over the years to try and harmonize these two accounts of what actually happened to Judas. Uh, Like the theory that uh, when Judas hanged himself, he actually decapitated his head or even his entire upper torso in the process and the rest of his body fell to the ground and all his insides splayed out on the field. (laughs) Do enjoy your lunch after thinking about this. Well anyway these discrepancies are only of a minor nature. The important point is that Judas died He couldn't live with the guilt of what he'd done to his Lord, and he had known the companionship of Jesus, and then having betrayed him, he couldn't live with that misery or sadness. Well, let's come back to how these first believers responded to the big assignment that Jesus gave them, that there were three things about them that are worth highlighting. The first one is that they became a people of prayer. Verse 14 says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That Their very first response to their big assignment was to go to prayer. Well, where do you start in fulfilling the assignment that God gives you? Well, by getting as close to God as possible. Jesus had counseled them to wait in Jerusalem until they experienced a special empowering by the Holy Spirit, and they'd only be able to be effective once they'd been filled or baptized in Holy Spirit. It's pretty safe to assume, I guess, that much of the subject of their praying was crying out to God for that empowering experience to happen. They probably didn't know what to expect or how it would happen, but they cried out or yearned for that which God was going to give them. That this was actually consistent with how Jesus had earlier taught about the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus had uh, taught that the Father in heaven would willingly give the Holy Spirit to those who came and asked for him uh, in the same way that a human father gives good gifts to his children. Here's what he said. He said, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, maybe we could say that the normal environment for receiving or encountering the power of the Holy Spirit is seeking it. I mean, seemingly, these initial believers were down on their knees asking, and the impression that one gets is that the kind of prayer that they were offering wasn't your quiet, sedate, formal prayer meeting stuff either. Some of the original Greek words used to describe their enthusiasm and fervency for prayer are perhaps a little bit lost in our English translations. The, the original Greek text doesn't just say that they were merely saying or reciting set or formulaic prayers. No, the words that he used meant an Earnest, a a fervent prayer of a a man or a woman who was excited about something. They were crying out to God with an energy and an urgency. Now, the Greek text also says that they continued strongly in prayer. There was a sense of perseverance, not giving up or keeping going. Not just, you know, oh oh Lord, please save all the people in my neighborhood, amen. No, their, their prayers were an earnest cry from their heart. That this was not a group of believers being coerced or cajoled into prayer meetings by a a, a grumpy pastor. No, you you couldn't keep them away. That they were really enthusiastic. Well, maybe it's worth noting that it was in that kind of an environment or climate that the events of the day of Pentecost eventually occurred. Might this be a a challenge for us today, maybe in response to a sense of call or assignment that we sense God is asking of us? When we hear afresh the commission of Jesus to witness to our encounter and experience of him, what's our response? What does it drive us to do? Well, if the book of Acts records normal Christianity and the activities of a a normal church, it's possibly on a point like this that we can draw the sharpest contrast with the Christian church in in our day and age. If the contemporary brand of Christianity is sterile or impotent compared to what we read about in the New Testament, maybe it's because we don't know the meaning of fervent, continuous, persistent prayer in the corporate life of our church. Now there are lots of things about a church like ours that we do well. There are lots of things about our corporate life that, well, I I think bring a smile to the face of God. But I wonder if God might want to hold up a mirror to us and suggest that our corporate prayer life is not one of them. Times of corporate prayer here are among our least attended gatherings. So here's the deal. If we truly want to see the power of God fall on us, like these first century believers did. We've got to learn about what it means to persist in prayer, that this was their first response to the assignment that Jesus gave them. Well, secondly, they appointed a successor to Judas. Well, we might think, well, why was that so important or significant? I mean, this point is perhaps a little bit technical, but Luke seems to stress the necessity of a replacement for the apostolic post that Judas left. In verse 21, for instance, Peter says, therefore it is necessary. But why? What did it matter if there were only 11 apostles instead of the original 12? Well, a number of possible reasons have been suggested over the years. I mean, if we go back to Luke chapter 22, for instance, Jesus uh, actually prophesied that the 12 apostles, because they had been with him through thick and thin, would one day sit on 12 thrones to judge each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So therefore, there needed to be 12 apostles. Or a second theory is that the apostles of the New Testament always, almost always, should I say, operated in pairs or teams of two, never on their own. Uh, When the apostles uh, went out on preaching missions, Jesus specifically sent them in pairs, two by two. And actually, when you read the list of apostles here in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, in the the Greek text, it's very clear that they were listed in pairs. It's Peter and John, uh, James and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and, oh, well, poor old Judas, son of James, was all on his own and he needed to have a partner. Then a third theory is that the original 12 apostles were to have a very specific and a strategic ministry or witness amongst the Jews. The original apostles were to witness to the fact that it was the same Jesus that they had lived with for many years, who was now back from the dead after his crucifixion. Well, we need to appreciate that the resurrection of Jesus was more than just an amazing miracle or, or testament to the power of God. Now, it certainly was that, but it had a far deeper significance than just an act of healing. It was hugely significant as a point of theology in Jewish thinking. The resurrected Jesus whom they witnessed about wasn't just a close likeness or merely something ethereal and mystical. No, he he was the same man that they had known and followed for several years. The apostolic witness to the resurrection was to play a fundamental part in the foundation of the Christian church in subsequent years. And it was actually the proclamation about the resurrection of Jesus that got the initial apostles into so much trouble with the Jewish religious leaders. So that's why Peter says in verses 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 1 that the qualification for such a position as apostle was having known and accompanied Jesus for much of his ministry since the time of his baptism by John the Baptist right through to being a personal eyewitness to his resurrection. In other words, someone who knew firsthand what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and firsthand experience of the power of God that raised him from the dead. But what do you do when you have more than one person that qualifies? You know, one vacancy, two equally qualified nominees. Well, having done their reference checking, we might say, or their due diligence, they cast lots. Now, whether this is a a method of choosing leaders in the church that ought to be enshrined into our annual practice today, I'm not too sure. But it, it wasn't an uncommon way of appointing people to tasks or duties in the affairs of the Jewish temple. Names of suitable candidates were written on stones and the stones were put into a vessel and shaken about until one of them fell out. That person then got the job. They would pray. They would ask God to overrule in the process. And in this case, it was Matthias whose lot was cast. Well, the third point about these initial believers that's worth highlighting is that they weren't daunted by the enormity of their assignment and the smallness of their number. Now, some might think this is possibly an argument from silence, but I reckon there's a principle here. In verse 15, it tells us that the number of Christian believers at this time was around 120. Now, when Jesus ascended to be with the Father, that was the extent of the personnel that he left behind him to run his business. Now, most, if not well, all of these people, had probably never left Israel during their lives. Uh, we know a good number of them were galileans which again as we've noted was not exactly your most respected social class in israel uh, some of them also had what we might call today criminal records from their former lives they were uh, the kind of people that jesus used to spend most of his time with and you know some of them have been thieves political terrorists prostitutes tax collectors and so on This was not a collection of people with a stellar record or a, you know, predicted most likely to succeed. It's to this somewhat unlikely collection of people that Jesus gives the enormous task of taking the gospel to the entire world and making disciples of all nations. Well, let's stop and think about this for a moment. I mean, Forgetting the rest of the world, the task within Israel alone was daunting enough. I mean, the population of Israel at that time has been estimated at around 4 million people. Uh, 120 followers of Jesus amounts to about 0.003 of 1% of the Jewish population. I mean, how how on earth can you make an impact on society from that small of a number? Uh, At the end of Jesus' ministry, there wasn't exactly a large critical mass with which to effect a spiritual revolution christianity had very very small beginnings big assignment small initial personality well i mean putting ourselves into their context how do you impact a city or a nation with the message of the gospel or well, maybe in our modern technologically advanced world, we might tend to think in terms of mass evangelism or mass communication. You know, well, what's the quickest and most cost-effective way to communicate the message? Gather as many people together in one place at one time and give them the message and demonstrate the power. Surely that will fulfill the task quickly. But that doesn't appear to be Jesus' strategy, nor the model that these first believers employed. After three years of preaching and teaching and performing all kinds of miracles, there are only 120 followers left behind. By modern church growth standards, we might not want to call that success. Or was it? 300 years later, the number of Christians was calculated at over 30 million people. That was around half the population of the Roman Empire bowing the knee to Jesus. 2000 years on, the number of Christ's followers currently alive is estimated at over 2.1 billion people or 32.5%, just under one third of the world's population. Now, I, I don't th- think for a moment that these uh, original 120 believers sat down with an ancient equivalent of a whiteboard and brainstormed about how to reach the world for Jesus. They they didn't come up with a strategic plan or a road map of how to evangelize the planet step by step. They they merely lived and loved people that they associated with, as they had seen Jesus do. They cared for the poor. They prayed for the sick. They shared their resources. They looked after widows and orphans. They told stories to their neighbors and extended families and workmates about their personal experience with Jesus. They, they modeled and showcased their community and love for one another in front of their various circles of acquaintance and the Holy Spirit did the rest. Now projecting Jesus' great commission onto our generation of the church, how how do we reach our city or our nation for Jesus? Many people, as I say, are tempted to think in terms of carefully planned strategies like mass communication or social media or large stadiums full of people being addressed by a hotshot evangelist. But if the past is anything to go by, it will only ever happen in far less dynamic ways. If our city or nation is going to be reached for Jesus, it will not be through fancy programs and visiting evangelists and multimedia campaigns. It will be through people like you and I who witness one-on-one to friends and contacts about what Jesus has done in our life. These initial followers of Jesus had a, a huge assignment to fulfill. It was their responsibility to take the life-changing, life-giving message of Jesus out to all the people of our world. How on earth could they achieve that? Well, the implication is quite clear. They weren't daunted by the enormity of their assignment. They weren't overwhelmed by what God was asking of them, even if they didn't know how it was going to be achieved. They simply began reflecting to others in their circle of acquaintance what Jesus had done for them. The power of God took over from there and the in the space of around 30 years or so, the Christian movement spread from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And my prayer is real simple. Lord, do it again through us. Thanks for joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. Find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz. Join us again next week at Central Speaks.